Good morning. Wow. I was like, worship either heated this place up and now you're all sleepy, or let's try it again. Good morning. I'm glad to see you guys here. If you're a guest, I want to welcome you. My name is Greg Harris. I'm the senior pastor here at Olive Branch, and I'm, I'm so excited you guys survived through the rain and the cold to get your kids in the building, because we all know how hard it is to wake our children up on a cold and rainy day. Amen? And uh, so uh, I can remember many times trying to get my kids up and out of bed and getting them here. No, I don't, because I was always here before them. My wife always did. But the uh, I, can, I usually remember getting them afterwards after service. One of those times was actually, um, my daughter was little. I think she was like first grade at that level or maybe even kindergarten. And our, um, our children's ministry gives our children candy because they're sadistic. And the, uh, the, the kids come out and they got their sucker and their lollipop and everything. And my kids and sugar don't mix. They've kind of got a bad combination going. And so I, I see her with it and she's like, Daddy, I really want you my sucker. And mommy's already said no. And she's like, Mommy said I can. I said, then you can't, you can't eat your sucker. And suddenly she does what every good child does. She just falls apart, like screaming bloody murder, falling on the floor. I'm like, this is just after church, in the, out there in the hallway, near the nursery. Everybody's like, that's the pastor's kid. Okay. You know, and I'm watching my daughter do this. And I'm just like, wow, you could be a professional mourner. This is like horrible. You're, you're shouting and wailing. I just kind of turn around. I'm like, have fun, trust. And I move down the hallway. And, and suddenly somebody's looking at my daughter, looking at me like, is everything okay? I said, oh, she's fine. I just told her about the Holocaust. And I walked on. Probably not the best thing to say, but the reality is in something like as horrific and awful as the Holocaust, don't you think that's how we should respond with wailing and hurting and crying and just passion that's just, ah, because it's a horrific thought to think of what happened at that time. Not a sucker. But the reality is that we don't. You can watch a movie and maybe you'll tear up, maybe you'll stand strong. And maybe you will, maybe you'll cry, but we don't wail, we don't weep, we don't cry out when we see massive amounts of death. In fact, in the United States, something's begun to concern me is that, um, it's just an observation, I do a lot of funerals. Check that, I don't do many funerals anymore. Actually, I do life celebrations and not funerals. People have stopped calling them funerals. They call them um, life celebrations. They don't want people to cry. They, they want it to be uplifting and light and happy. And we don't want to think bad thoughts. And, and I'm just kind of like, wow, this is a really interesting trend in our culture that we, we, we are so afraid of pain. Now we're even backing away, in my mind, away from the pain of death. And we don't want to think about it. We don't want to engage the hurt. We don't want to engage the sorrow. We, we want to kind of avoid that at all costs in some ways. And I've seen this. You got some people literally are stoic through an entire funeral. Other people, you know, they got their glasses. They're hiding their tears. They're not going to show it. Others are like literally hiding their faces. Uh, if you were like me, and I've done all these different things when my mom died, I went through lots of different phases from convulsive crying, which is very ugly, to all the way when I'm just like going to work and trying not to think about it. And the reality is that we, we react so many weird ways with death. Somebody's got to sit down and say, hey, this is how we should act. Because Christians are the most confused I've met yet. Because many times when our loved ones who know Jesus Christ die, we go like, well, they're in a better place. I'm happy for them. They're no longer suffering. And we almost like want to be Pollyanna-ish about it. Really skip along life. Like, it's no big deal and it's okay. And, and I don't know if I'm supposed to cry. I don't know how I'm supposed to feel. When somebody I loved has died and gone on to be with the Lord. 
And so how should a Christian mourn? How should we deal with grief? How should we work through these things is really what I want to deal with as we go through a very um, well-known passage of the Bible, uh, namely the resurrection of Lazarus. We find that in John chapter 11. And I want you guys to grab your Bibles, if you will, and open it up to John chapter 11. We'll go through these 45 verses today as fast as we can and as carefully as we can. But, um, but if you don't have a Bible, you're going to need one. Grab them from under the seats. You can find it on page 897, or you can open up your app and you'll find it John 11 and we're going to begin in verse 1. It begins here that Jesus is just in the past, just been uh, run out of Jerusalem basically because he's just claimed he was God. They want to throw stones at him, have him arrested and locked up. And so there is a deep threat going on to Jesus' life in the Judean area. So he's gone out, he's down by the, out by where John the Baptist was baptizing last time we saw him. And now he receives some news. Verse one, now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. So this starts off giving you a frame of reference that this is somebody that Jesus is intimately connected with. It's a family he knows well. It's a family he has hung out with. They're not in his disciple group, but Mary has been close enough that she's actually anointed Jesus his feet. And this is a very intimate setting that he loves Lazarus. This is a befriending love. And so in essence, they have petitioned Jesus. They've kind of gummed him and said, hey, Jesus, quick, get over here. The guy, your friend, the one that you love, he's, he's sick. He's dying. In other words, get over here so you can heal him. Come on in back to town and help your, help your friend out. And here's Jesus' response, verse 4. But when Jesus heard it, he said, The illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And it's almost as if Mary and Martha's petition is just ignored, set aside. I mean, how many of us have felt this feeling? And this is the pre-mourning phase, really. This is before Lazarus has died. But how many of us, when we see our loved one who is sick, when we've encountered our loved one who, is, who has come down with cancer or has come down with some kind of unknown disease, that you don't find yourself in fervent prayer begging God to heal them? Isn't that true? All of us, I think, if we're Christians, if, even if you're not, you will find yourself in some sense hoping for a miracle, looking for God to act, just as they were. And they run to Jesus, in, in a sense, sending their prayer, sending their messenger, and Jesus goes, don't worry about it. It'll be okay. And I'm not saying that he just brushes it off. He says, this is going to go to the glory of God. This is going to go greater. But that's how it feels to us. When you're sitting there and you're begging God to answer your prayer, to heal that loved one, that child, that parent, and it feels like it's just bouncing off the ceiling. Doesn't it begin to get you concerned? Does it begin to begin to irk us? I find that when we don't understand God's um, response, when we feel like he's saying no, we want to get control. And so we send out prayer requests thinking that if 10,000 people were praying, God has to listen then. But that's not, you can't manipulate God, can you? I mean, or, or we turn around and we do bargaining. Have you ever bargained with God? God, if you, if you heal or save this person, I'll go to church every week. I'll, I'll become a, an elder, a deacon, you name it. 
or, or, we, or we go, I'll give all the time, or you know, we do these bargaining tricks with God to just, just to get him to move. And I guarantee they're doing similar. The one that you love. Hey, Jesus. It's not just Lazarus. This guy, you love this guy. Get over here. Mary Martha began this bargaining process in the midst of what was becoming closer and closer to grief. And yet in the middle of all this, Jesus says, no, God's got this. He's going to do something great with this because Jesus is pointing at something in the middle of our mourning, before it happens, in the middle of our grief, even after someone has died, even after something horrible has occurred, God is still in control. And that's where I want to begin this morning, in a conversation that God's control gives meaning in grief. That God is actually in control of this stuff, actually brings a meaning to your grief and to my grief. Here Jesus goes on. Now, Jesus, just so you guys don't think that Jesus is just making this up, that Mary and Martha are just like, well, you love him. He's like, no, I don't. It says, we're reminded, verse 5. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So don't, don't think that he didn't love them. And it's important that we note that because look at how verse 5 begins. So he loves, he loves Martha and his sister and Lazarus. Verse 6 then goes, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Oh, he loves these guys, so he didn't go. He cares about Lazarus, so he stayed away. You ever think that God loved you so much he didn't answer one of your prayers? Sounds like a Garth Brooks song, doesn't it? (laughs) But um, the reality is that God has times where he doesn't answer us because he has a greater plan than we can comprehend. God has moments in which he tells us no because if he was to say yes... It would go in a completely different way that maybe doesn't even lead to the good that he intends. God, in other words, knows better than us. It's it's the picture that my friend told me when he he was saving money for his his daughter. And his daughter kind of knew. And she's like, I really want to have this gift. And she was like yelling at him about having this particular present that she really wanted. And he said no. And she just didn't, didn't understand that he was saving this money for a greater thing, like a trip to like Disneyland or something, something she would love. But she thought he was holding back from her the thing that she really wanted because he was doing something greater. He had more information. We as parents, we get that. But we forget in the midst of our mourning, in the middle of our grief, that God has a plan that sometimes is so much, that that always is so much greater than ours. It's so much more complex than what we can comprehend. And we have to step back and realize that that plan is not something we can control. Even the disciples had to learn that. Look as they go on. Um, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. And verse 7 goes on. Then after he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? Let's let it calm down a little bit. We don't have to go there now. You would just put your life at risk. And Jesus said, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he doesn't stumble, but he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. In other words, Jesus says, look, I get you guys think it's dangerous, but my father has a plan. The light of the world. When you walk during the day, you walk in God's will. When you're there, you do the things of the light. I'm the light of the world. I do the things of the light. I'm not going to walk in the night and stumble. No, we're going to do what God has intended. In other words, isn't that what we want? Isn't ultimately what we desire is that God's will would be done? I mean, we don't want our will. How how many times does our will mess stuff up? Isn't that true? 
And yet here we're like, no, we know what should have happened. And God's like, no, I need you to trust me. There's a greater plan going on here. There's something bigger happening here, especially in this case with Lazarus. There was a a bigger thing occurring that was going to glorify the Son of Man. And there's this whole situation they didn't get. Even at the risk of Jesus' life, he says, we're going to do what God wants us to do. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to waken him. And the disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he's going to recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of Lazarus' death, but they thought he meant taking rest and sleep. So they thought he was just taking a nap, he was going to get better. And they're like, yeah, Jesus knows everything. He knows when the guy's sleeping in Bethany, miles and miles and miles away. Yeah, and they're just, they just take that for, you know, for granted, I guess. And he says, no. So he tells them straight, Lazarus has died, verse 14 says. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let's all go so that we can die with him. Such a dangerous setting that he's going to go near Judea. They're like, fine, if he's going, let's all go. If he's going to die, we might as well all go die with him. But it's an interesting picture. Here the disciples have been pushing back on Jesus' plan. That's nice you love Lazarus. That's nice he's your friend. We don't need to go there. It's dangerous. But we're going to do God's will. Okay. I want God's will. And what they illustrate to us is that when it comes between your control and God's control in the midst of grief, you have to trust his plan and you have to surrender to it. The first stage in any form of working through your grief has to be your ability to surrender to the fact that you're not in control. If you try to constantly control in the midst of your grief, nobody's going to be around you to help you through your grief because nobody likes controlling people. And the reality is we don't control God, so we end up controlling others. We end up trying to manipulate things and make it happen. This is my, and it's, it's just dangerous. And so you have to get to the place where you surrendered yourself over to God's plan. Now, is that easy? Tell me, church, is that easy? No, but it's necessary. And surrender begins through prayer. It's a surrender by returning to God. It's an understanding that your will be done, not mine. It's an ability to just simply go, God, I'm going to go with you, as the disciples say, even if that means we're going to die. And so this is hard, but it's the first step. And when you do that, when you've surrendered over to God, to his plan, guess what that means? It means it has meaning. If God doesn't have a plan for that person's life, there's no meaning to that life then. There's no meaning to that death. There's no point in what happened. It's a random bunch of things that have occurred and there is absolutely no reason to believe that it has any meaning whatsoever. And what we're struggling with oftentimes when we don't trust in God's plan is what was the point? Why did this happen? And you only find that meaning over time, not in the moment. And that's why you have to surrender to God's plan if you're going to find the answer to that meaning. It's in time you discover that God was doing something through the lives of the people who came to that funeral or through the lives of others. And sometimes that's not easy to see. I'm still waiting with my mom. My mom died um, about eight years ago now. And uh, that's six, seven years ago now. But it's, it was so difficult because it just spun my family all to pieces. 
And to this day, we still sit around. And I think a lot of us are still wondering, why in the world did God do this and what is going on? And we're starting to see some interesting answers and what God was doing. But the bottom line is, you don't always see it clearly. But one day, I believe you will. And I'm constantly surrendering that over to God. It's something that I struggle with because I trust who God is. But that trust has to come through truth. And so we find it interesting as Jesus comes up to the first person who's mourning in the passage in verse 17. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, he tells us this, that it's been four days, not because of the, the mythology that the, um, the spirit hovered around the body for four days trying to figure out how to get back in and then took off. No, it was the, it's the picture that this indeed was a death. Lazarus is truly dead. This is not some kind of set-up magic trick where they're like, hey, just, 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 you go hide in, the, hide in the tomb for a day. I'll come by and say, Lazarus, come out. And wow, everybody's going to think I'm amazing and they'll get off my back. No, he's been dead for four days. Every, he's been staying away because Lazarus and truly has died. And so Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha had heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. And Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Does that resonate with anybody else who, after you've had someone die? Man, God, you could have done something differently. Why didn't you do this? Why didn't you hear my prayer? Why didn't you hear me crying out to you? Oh, how many times did I feel that way as I drove on the 210, having just missed my mom's last breath by a half hour. All my last prayer was, God, I just want to hear her last word. I didn't get to do it. And the reality was because I just was absent, and yet God reminded me in that, that look, in this text, that look, I was crying out to her. I was mad. I was like, God, why? You could have done something totally different. Why does that have to end up this way? screaming in my car all the way there, I resonate with Martha. And then Jesus hears this. And yet inside is another trick. Look at this. Look carefully at 21, 22. Look, look down at your text. Lord, if you hadn't had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Now, as she's saying, but I still trust you can do a resurrection, so I'm waiting around. This is odd because later in the text, she's like, uh, she doesn't really believe he can do it. In fact, he will tell her, I'm going to raise him. He's like, yeah, 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 I, I get it. You, I believe you're the Christ. I trust you, but I, I, I don't know what you're saying. Oh, open the tomb. Oh, you can't do that yet. And so Martha is not engaged in this way of like, yeah, well, you know, he, God can raise him from the dead. No, this is not, that's not what's going on. What's going on is, is this a person mourning? And if you've ever been in mourning, you know how inside of your heart is that last flicker of hope. Even after they've died. Even after that loved one is gone, you're still sitting there going, oh, maybe, just maybe they're wrong. Maybe, the, maybe they'll resuscitate. Maybe they'll come back. God, you can still raise them from the dead. And it's almost not until that, that, that casket or that urn goes all the way in and it's, it's laid over, the, the dirt is laid on the top that you finally realize it's over. It's done. Four days later, God shows up on the scene and she's got this last flicker of hope. Just maybe, just maybe. And yet, Maybe not. She's struggling with what she believes. She's wrestling with how she's holding it together amidst the emotions. Isn't that how we all deal with truth? 
Emotions are so overwhelming. They shade truth. They hide truth. They can make truth very difficult to understand. So no wonder that Jesus turns to her and says exactly what he was going to say, what he's going to do. Verse 23, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Now, I don't know about you. If Jesus showed up at the funeral and said, your mom's going to rise again. I don't know how I would take that. Martha, I, took, I think, took it as false comfort. Look at how she responds. Martha said to him, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Is this like I am an Orthodox Jewish person? I believe that there's a resurrection on the last day and I know that. No, this is the same thing that happens to me and you. When you have somebody who dies and they come up to you and say, you know, it's okay. They're in a better place. Who likes that? I mean, honestly. Oh, they're in a better place. That's nice. They're in a better place. I'm still here. I'm dealing with the emotions right now. Amen? It's hard to hear false comfort. I don't think Jesus is giving false comfort. I think she's hearing it. Jesus is saying what he's going to do. He's saying, I'm going to raise your brother. And she's going like, I know he'll raise on the last day. I've got it all in my head. I get there in heaven. Woo-hoo. I got the theology down, Jesus. And Jesus is kind of like, no, no, let me, let me explain to you. Let me give you some truth. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever trusts in me, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And I wonder if they just got used to Jesus like saying off the wall, very cryptic things towards you. And they're just like, I, I don't know, because she doesn't respond. She, she's taking this whole new theological concept that's being dumped on her. Jesus is saying, I'm the resurrection. I'm the life. Not I can resurrect, not I can give life. No, he is the essence of life. He's making a declaration that he is God. Do you believe this? And she's like, uh, yes, Lord, I believe you're the Christ, the son of God who's coming into the world. She doesn't say, yes, I believe you're the resurrection and the life. She doesn't affirm what he just said. And that's because when you're in grief, truth is sometimes the hardest thing to swallow. When you're in grief, you have to start with what you already trust and believe. Some of you have gone through grief and you've wrestled with whether you even believe in God. You're struggling because you're like, God, why would you let this person die? This doesn't even make sense. Why is this child dead? Why is this person dead? What's going on here? And the grief that is overwhelming us causes us to even ponder or wonder about God's existence. For me, I didn't wonder about God's existence. I didn't struggle at that point. And though some of you might, for me, it was years and years and years of of working through lots and lots of apologetics and truths that I could just go back to and go, well, I can't deny the resurrection. I know that happened in history. And I can't deny that then Jesus is God. and And so it just builds on itself. But I had to go back to what I did know to found myself in order to be able to move forward. I had to go back to what I knew about God, that he'd answered these specific prayers, about my experience of him in calling me, into ministry. I had to go back to what I'd seen him do over and over again in in healing people and doing things like this and go, I know you exist. I've seen and experienced you. I can't deny that. Therefore, now I can move forward into trusting you in greater things. And where it helped me was my aunt came up to me shortly after and handed me a book by Randy Alcorn called Heaven. 
And I opened the book up, and while I had already, yes, I believed in heaven, it started to paint pictures about the future. It started to paint pictures about what, was, what, were, what my mom was experiencing and where she was at and the scriptural base for that. And it began to motivate my soul in a new way where may, I may have been rejecting that or even ignoring that because I was able to stand on what I knew, then I was ready and prepared to begin to grow because I could trust God for greater things looking back on what I had trusted him in the past. Martha trusted that Jesus was who he said he was. I believe you're the Christ. I believe you're the son of God. I believe you're coming into the world. And I think that was the beginning place to where maybe she could hope that something else was going. It helped her trust him. It revealed her trust. Guys, you need to get this because truth and your emotions don't fit together all the time. I'll give you an illustration I gave my kids. Sitting at the dinner table, we're talking about the idea of people who wrestle with their faith and whether or not they're saved and these kind of things. Or, and we were talking about love and love towards the kids. And this is how I illustrate I said, hey, guys, you know when you do really, really bad things in the house and you mess it all up or you break something mommy and daddy really love and like, and I start yelling and screaming at you, which I do, I'm sorry, I confess, um, and I get really mad. Do you think daddy loves you at that very moment? They're like, No. I'm like, you're right. I don't. I'm very angry at you. I don't feel love. Now, do I love you? They're like, yes. I'm like, well, why? If my, if my love is based on the emotion I'm feeling right at the moment, how can I love you and be angry at you at the same time? I said, let me explain. Because I saw you guys be born. You're my kids. No thing changes that fact in the past. My emotions don't change the reality that you're my children. The emotions don't change the reality that Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose from the dead for our sins. The emotions don't change the reality that God created the universe. We can feel many different things and they have no bearing on the reality. And so truth is so important when you are going through mourning to be in the word of God, to let God minister to your soul, to build your trust while you grieve and not to allow your emotions to run you into realms that sometimes are more dangerous and untruthful. And so allow the truth to come in. Now, it's not always happy. It's not always comforting, but it is it is helpful for trust. But then Jesus kind of moves on from there. And we begin to get something different. We begin to run into God's compassion. And that will bring comfort in grief. Let's look at this. Verse 28. When she had heard, when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here, he's calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose, Mary rose, and quickly went to him. And now Jesus had not yet come into the village. He was still in the place where Martha had met him. So he's still in the safe zone, away from all those Jewish people that had been gathered from Jerusalem, who knew people who wanted to kill him in Jerusalem. And so he's kind of keeping his distance. And that distance is going to disappear right now. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise and quickly go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying the same thing Martha said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping, this is a different response now. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Now, I want to show two things here in this passage. First of all, the word weeping on the behalf of Mary, uh, Mary and the, the Jewish people that were there is not, oh, 
American funeral weeping, you know? We're, we're, we're crying. Some of us are sobbing. This is, they're like crying. They're, they were professional wailers and mourners. They did it intentionally to gather around to provoke the sorrow was the intention, to allow you to have a catharsis and feel the pain. And so they would come and they would release they're weeping, wailing, and screaming. In their, and that's what Mary is doing in front of Jesus. She is wailing. And Jesus sees her and sees these people crying over his loved friend. And he was moved deeply. And we go, oh, I love that Jesus is moved deeply. Except that's not how you should translate that. The words, every other time that it shows up in the New Testament, reflect anger or sternness. Not a deep emotion. And it's been translated this way because people are confused. Why, is, why would Jesus get mad? He sees these people weeping and he's like, mm. he gets mad. What is up with that? Is he mad at the Jewish people all showing up? Darn it, you found me. Mm. No, that's not likely what's going on. Is he mad because they're all crying? Don't you know I'm going to resurrect him? Mm. No, that's not what's going on. Why is he mad? There's a hint in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 18. God is speaking. It says, For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. Let's read that again. For I have no pleasure in the death of who? Anyone, declares the Lord God. He doesn't get pleasure in people's death. He doesn't love that these children have died. He doesn't love that an 80-year-old has died or a 110-year-old has died. He doesn't like this. He doesn't enjoy it. He hates it. Death is not something that he's like, I love death and I'm all for it. No, he gets no pleasure in death. So when he sees them mourning and he sees them hurting, it's not supposed to be this way. I mean, he's looking at Mary Martha. Does he, was he thinking, they're, they're doomed. Lazarus is dead. They're going to end up as women without any ability for income. They may end up prostitutes. They may end up in a lot of different case scenarios. But here they are, and they have no ability to keep themselves afloat. Or was he thinking back to when his father, Joseph, had died, which is very likely had died prior to his ministry. And is he remembering how his mother wept and cried and how his brothers and sisters fell apart and how the family cohesion began to fall apart because the father was gone? Or did he remember the death of Cain and Abel and the death of Adam and Eve? Because this is the mind of God we're talking about, not just a man. And did he remember every human death that has gone on over and over and over and over and over and over and all it did was make him angry because this is not what God intended. You see, wrapped up in your soul, it says in Ecclesiastes, is eternity. It's not that teenagers think they're immortal and invincible. They think they're invincible. We all think we're immortal. No one I know wakes up in the morning going, yeah, I'm going to die today. We get up thinking, I'm going to live today, go to bed, get up tomorrow, live tomorrow, get up. Now, you may be feeling the aches and pains of a body that's beginning to break down, but you still think you've got a long time to go because the mortality is, immortality is born up and bound up in our soul. We weren't intended to die. That's why it's a tragedy whether you're 110 or two that you die. That's why it hurts no matter what. And it's not, oh, they had a good old life. 
It was still cut short. And the reality in this sense is Jesus is angry because we get angry. If you've ever lost someone, it is not the first reaction to cry. It is oftentimes the first reaction to be mad. I remember in the car, what I did was I got angry. And I yelled, do you know why? Because my mom was supposed to be reading my kids. My mom was supposed to be at my daughter's wedding. My mom was supposed to be there when my kids graduate. And grandma was supposed to be a part of their lives. It's not supposed to be this way. And God agrees. What you're seeing is the humanity of Christ and his compassion. He understands it. It's no wonder that the text continues on. When he, when, when he, said, he saw that he saw them moving, he was greatly troubled. Where have you laid him, he said. And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And it says, Jesus wept. Now, this does not mean Jesus wailed. This is a different word. It means that he teared up and he cried. There should be a, a newsflash to us men who hold back our emotions at funerals. That the God of the universe became a human being and what he did was he, when he encountered death, he saw that this is not right and he wept. It's not right. But why is he crying? I mean, honestly, he's going to raise him in five minutes. What's the point? Come on, Jesus. It's okay. You're going to resurrect him. Thanks. No, I mean, why is he weeping? Why, why is Jesus crying if he knows he's going to raise him up? Again, because he's human. Christians, we know our loved ones who know Christ are going to be back. We know that I know I'm going to see my mom again. I know I'm going to enjoy hearing her tell a story to my, to my kids, I, or at least to me. I know that I'm going to enjoy her presence once again in eternity after the resurrection. I know that I still wept. Because it's not supposed to be this way. It hurts to know my mom's not there at the birthday parties. It hurts to know that my, child, my youngest son has, and my two youngest sons have no recollection of my mother. It hurts to look at where she sat in this church and see it still not filled by her. It's right to weep. It's right to hurt. Because to love is to feel the loss when death enters in. And the more you love, the deeper that pain will be. And it's okay and right. And if our God, who is in heaven, has come to this earth as a human, and in the midst of the funeral wept, how much more can we go to this God in prayer? who is not aloof to our feelings as humans going, I have no idea what you're doing, human. I have a plan and you must trust me. No, this God who has a great plan and puts it all together, this God who has true truths and gives them to us is also the God who feels our feelings and weeps with us and is angry with us and he is there with us. He is not aloof to your prayers and to the brokenness of this world, whether you're mourning a divorce, a death, a disease, a loss of a dream, it is right to mourn and grieve and God is there with you. So go to him with your grief.
and go to him because he will not leave it alone either. He won't leave death to be. In fact, his power will become our hope. And that's what we see in the end as he approaches. Then Jesus deeply moved again. Huh, what? Wait a minute, he was just angry. Now he's crying. Now he's back to angry. What's going on here? We could say that he's just having the roller coaster of emotions, but this is different. He's deeply moved as he approaches the tomb. Then Jesus deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave and the stone lay against it. What is this picture of? Why is he mad again? Because of this. When life meets its enemy death, what it has is anger because it's going to wield its weapon, resurrection against death. You see, death has fought life over and over and over again. It appears death has won. But in Jesus Christ, death is about to lose because he is the resurrection. I believe he's angry because he's a good soldier, a prince who's come to defeat his enemy and set people free, namely his friends. And so he's come against this one. He has come to destroy it. And he comes and he says, take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, and I quote from the King James Version, Lord, how can this be? For by this time he stinketh. I love that line. (laughs) Stinketh. My son was in the first service. He'd start laughing. The reality is that there's an odor. He's decaying. It's It's nasty. Don't roll that stone back. And Jesus just says, no. Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God, Martha? Did I just say this to you? I'm repeating your words. So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I knew that you always hear me because Martha said so. He's using Martha's words now to reaffirm her faith in those around her. But I I said this on the account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Pregnant pause. Everybody's staring at the tomb. When the world's going to happen. The man who had died came out. His hands and feet bound with linen strips. His face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to him, unbind him and let him go. Unbind him and let him go. Let him live again. Let him be unbound from death and live. I'm victorious, guys. What we have here is hope. You see, God's power will not leave death alone. The one who is life will fight death and win. He will resurrect it, and it's already final in his resurrection. That's why I told you if you were here last week, if you want to study anything about the truths of Christianity, start with the resurrection, because if Jesus is risen from the dead in a Jewish context, he has conquered death, and we have nothing to fear, for our God has come to save us and has defeated death. And so when you come to the funeral, while we weep, and yes, we are angry, we do not weep as those with no hope. We rise up because we have hope. We have a guarantee that we will resurrect. And this isn't kind of wish fulfillment hope. This is called, I just ordered that on Amazon, and I can't wait because I know it's coming. I hope it's in a few hours. It's delivery kind of hope. It's yours, guaranteed, already ordered, on its way. The only problem is we don't have a little tracking unit to tell us how far away Jesus is from from coming to get us in the resurrection. But that's the kind of hope we're talking about, guaranteed hope, where when you face death, you know, and if your loved one has died, you know that, and if they've had a relationship with the resurrection, if they have a relationship with the life, namely Jesus, you know you will see them again, and it's not goodbye 
It's only see you later. And the beauty is that gives hope. And so in your grief, while you definitely need to wrestle through God's plan and surrender to it, and while you need to have his truth so you can trust him, and while you need to know he understands so we can go to him and he's compassionate, we need to understand that he is not going to leave it this way. Because it wasn't supposed to be this way. And he sent his son Jesus Christ to die on the cross and raise from the dead to reverse the mess that we've created with sin. And we can praise God for that. Amen? But Greg, what do I do about my friend who, uh, who died and didn't know Jesus? I mean, I can't, I can't, I, uh, what do I do in that case? Well, again, you can trust that their, their death and their life had meaning because God has a plan. You can trust God's truth that he is faithful and just and he will work through that person rightly without any, any wrong and they'll get exactly what they earned in life. And finally, you can trust that he's compassionate. Then he knows what you're feeling. But lastly, you go, but still, Greg, how do I, how do I love? I mean, Brent used to bring this to me all the time, wrestling with this problem because his dad did, wasn't a believer. And he's like, if, I, if my dad dies and doesn't know Christ, how, this is going to be hard for me. How am I going to feel? What am I going to do? I said, you're going to mourn. You're going to mourn hard. But I guarantee you one day it'll make sense. He's like, how is that possible? I said, well, if I was to insult your wife, Nancy, well, I love Nancy, but if I was to insult your wife, Nancy, even though you love me, wouldn't you get mad at me? Oh, yeah. I don't want you calling her names. Now, if I, if I falsely accused her of things and yelled in her face, wouldn't you get in the between us? I say, oh, yeah. Now, if your dad was doing that, would you get in between them? He's like, yeah. Because you always defend the one you love the most. When we see our loved ones cursing God on the day of their judgment, do you not think we won't stand up and defend God who we love more than anything at that point? And it was just a basic ways to show that our priorities will be radically shifted in eternity. And that it will ultimately make sense in the end. But right now, all we can do is those first three things. Trust and surrender to God's plan to know he's compassionate and then rejoice that we have a hope in his power. So let's pray. How great are you, God, that you would give us such a great hope that we would not have to fear the specter of death and allow it to break us down so deeply that we cannot celebrate a life. But Lord, we know that in the midst of that celebration, there is mourning. And yet you have loved us with such a love that you would be compassionate about us and join us in that mourning. No other, no other God in any construction does that but you. We thank you that you love us like you do. And so, God, we trust these truths that we receive from your word today and we surrender ourselves to your plan because we know we don't know everything. And we know that you're good. And your love for us never fails. And it goes on and on and it never stops. And so, God, let us rejoice in your love. In Jesus' name, amen.